Good morning. <laughs> I realized, you know, in all the weeks I've been here and been talking, I haven't talked about like my other favorite thing. Uh, I've talked a lot about Jesus, and that's good, but, but I realized I haven't talked much about India, and so as I was preparing uh, this morning, or preparing this, preparing this week for this morning, I, I was like, oh, here's a, here's a fun story to share. So um, if you're not aware, like, I am madly in love with this country. So five, six years ago, I got taken by a mentor out to India um, to get to teach at a seminary out there, and I just fell in love with the people, their culture, the smells, the dirt, the mess, everything. Um, I just thought it was fantastic, and so I've been going back a couple of times a year, so normally in March, it's really sad, normally this time we're getting prepped to go in March. Normally in March, I go for a couple of weeks, um, and we work with a denomination in the southeast of, uh, south, yeah, southeast of India, <laughs> and um, and we're equipping pastors, training leaders for their church and their denomination. And in the summer, I go over and I get to teach at a seminary in central India um, and equip the next generation of leaders for the church, which is, is really exciting. So every March, I go and I go here. Um, and so we go, we spend time with these amazing people, all the smiles, all the faces. I think this is them like saying they're really excited to be here for today. And let's take a picture to wave at all your people back at home. Um, but this morning, I was on the way to this conference. So there's people sitting here. When you turn this way, there's another big tent with people sitting over here. And we're excited because it's day two or three. The conferences were kind of in our groove. Um, there's me, there's my friend Bob, and then there's our, our, our brother over there, Rufus, that, that do ministry together. And so we arrive and we're driving here. And on the way in the morning, Rufus looks at me and he's like, okay, so I have a different plan for this morning. I'm like, okay. What's the different plan? Because it's always changing. Is that we're going to leave Bob here. Bob's going to do the conference himself. And then we're going to jump in the car. And I want to take you 40 minutes away um, to pray for a friend of mine. And I'm like, okay. He's like, so this, this friend is one of our key evangelists. He's in an area that's really tough soil. Um, so, so the people there are adamant Hindus. They don't want anything to do with Christianity. Because of his avid faith, They've kicked him out of the village. They've taken and repossessed his home. They've given away all of his goods. And they've made an agreement as a community that if he comes in looking for food, they're not allowed to sell to him. If he needs anything, turn him away and beat him up before you do so. If you are down by the river and you see him with a fishing pole, break the fishing pole, take his fish and beat him to a pulp. No, this guy is struggling, he's so defeated, he has lost everything, and he's trying to figure out how can he possibly continue to follow Jesus in the middle of all of this. And he's like, so what I want to do is I want to get in the car together, we'll drive 40 minutes, we'll go meet this guy, and I would just love you to pray for him. Because in the Indian caste system, um, there, there are these different levels of social hierarchy that dictate your value. They're all related in their system to how you lived in previous lives. And if you lived well enough in a previous life, then you're born in a higher caste this life. If you lived terribly in a previous life, then you're born in a low caste. So people are born into their situation. There is no previous life. There is a future life that we're going to live with Jesus. Um, and so they're believing that the situation that they've brought up, that they've been born into, the poverty, the difficulties they face, is the consequence of failures in previous life. So there's a lot of shame that's attached to this. As Westerners coming into their culture, we are wealthy, especially if you have white skin, you're considered like way above their caste. 
And so the cast above them won't talk to them. So they're like, if you come in as a Westerner from the outside and you sit with this guy and you lay your hands on him and you pray for him, that imparts to him a value that you will never understand because it's saying that he is worthy of being elevated to higher caste. And so this is an important moment. Prior to going, I had some friends caution me about my trip to India. If you go, something terrible is going to happen. You're going to get hurt. You're going to lose your life. I really don't think you should go. And we've been praying about it, and we want to discourage you from going. These are not normally people that would be directing where I'm going ministry-wise, but they were speaking into it, and I was like, that's not in alignment with anything anyone else is saying to me. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They came on very strong. Uh, Mon and I prayed about it. We felt I was supposed to go. So we kind of stood in the face of fear. I went to India. So here I am at this moment. And I'm like, sure, let's do this. And Rufus is like, okay, this is really rough. We're going to have to be really careful when you um, are over there meeting with this guy. Like, we can't be seen. So as normal, he jumps in the driver's seat. I jump in the passenger seat. And as I open the door, he's like, oh, no, you're not sitting in the front. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? He's like, you're going to have to lie down in the back. And we're going to put a blanket over you because no one can see you. Because if we do this and someone catches us, we may not come back. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm, I'm not so sure I want to do this now. Um, so I get in the back and I'm just like, you're just kind of going with the flow and I'm lying there. And I was like, I'm going to take this picture because I was terrified. And I'm, I'm like, I want to take a picture because I want to remember this moment. Um, and so here I am lying in the back of this car uh, there's a blanket covering me. I'm, I've, I've got my head down. And all I can think about is these things people spoke to me about how you're going to get hurt. You're going to lose your life. You shouldn't do this. And everything in me wanted to walk away from the moment and say, hey, let's just turn back. And I, I, another time I'll, I'll talk about this, but actually I pulled out my phone because it was the only thing I had on me. And I just, I couldn't pray. So I just started praying, like texting myself, like a big long message, essentially saying, you know, these guys every day, are risking their life for the sake of the gospel. I can at least risk my life to line the back of a car and go pray for a guy. Um, and so we, we drive 40 minutes. I'm in the back. I'm praying. I'm like, I'm going to die. Uh, I came to the point where I was like, no, God, if you want me to die, this was it. If you want me to die, I will die. There's no use fearing it. If you want me to live, I will live. So why fear it? So just don't fear. So I'm just going to go. We're going to do it. I'm going to trust that God has called us to this, that he will protect us. Um, and so we get there, and, and he's explaining how this is all going to work. We're going to drive somewhere. We're going to drop someone off. They're going to go find him. And then we're going to go to this secluded place, and we're going to meet up, and he's going to come in the car. And then we're going to have this little clandestine meeting in the car, and then we'll give him some money and some food, and we'll kind of kick him out the door, and we'll drive away as fast as we can. And so we get there, all this happens, this guy gets in the car filled with Jesus, um, and, and you could see the weight of persecution on his body. Uh, and, and I'm like, oh, it's time to pray. So I bounce up in the back, like ready to pray, and Rufus is like, no, 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 and he grabs me and he shoves me back down, and I'm like, <laughs> the other part of this, that, that just to make matters worse, so the area that we're going to so we're doing these conferences, and when we do these conferences, there's drums, there's singers, there's worship, and, and it's amazing. So it turns out in their village, they're having their own conference, and, and as we're driving, all I can hear is the drums, boom, 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 and the closer we get, the louder it gets, until I'm lying there with this blanket over my head, and I swear if I looked up, they must have been right here, because we're driving right through this village, through the middle of this conference. <laughs> 
with all these people that hate Christians and want to kill us all. And I'm like panicking. But, but we get there, we spend time, we pray for this guy. He is in tears at the fact that we would make the journey out to give him money, to encourage him. And, uh, uh, and we give him, it's all very quick, we give him the stuff, we kick him out of the car, he goes away, we drive back, and Rufus is, is explaining to him in the ways that you will never understand what that meant to him. You will never understand how much confidence and hope that is, and, and his ability to function as an evangelist will continue because you were willing to make that drive and do it. And, and I share that story because it's the first time in my life where I ever came anywhere remotely close to persecution. It's the first time I, I basically kind of rubbed up against it, just like kind of touching the wall as you go by. I did not experience persecution. I did not face what they face. But there are people in the world that are facing this every single day for their faith. They are so committed to Jesus, they understand his calling, that they are using every energy of their body, every possession that they have, capitalizing on every relationship that they're a part of to share their faith, even if it means losing everything, and even if it means they're killed and their family are killed in the process. Um, I was terrified brushing up against it once. They face this head on every single day of their life. And then we sit over here thinking we've got it really hard as Christians who don't, we're, we're persecuted, you know, in this country. We don't, we don't know what it's like to experience persecution. Um, I share that story um, to, one, to share what I love, which is over, over there. Two, to highlight their faith, their boldness, and their perseverance, which should be a source of conviction to us. Um, and then the passage that we're looking at today in Acts 4 is, is really the first time that the church as an entity begins to experience some kind of persecution. So I wanted to give that story as the backdrop to what we're about to read. Um, so remembering context, we're in this series called Sent. Why are we looking at Acts? We're trying to recover the vision for who the church is supposed to be. What is the mission that we're supposed to be walking in? And um, the context of the passage before Acts chapter 4, where have we come from? Jesus ascended, he poured out his spirit, Pentecost happened, all of a sudden the believers are being transformed, they're being bold in the gospel, they have this radical community life, one day they're out there walking about, and there's this healing moment, a man that's in his 40s who's been lame from birth is healed in a moment, and no one can dispute it, and everybody is seeing it, the church is celebrating it, the people around about are celebrating it, but the religious establishment is not a fan of it, and, and things begin to turn in a not-so-nice direction, which is always the way it goes. When the people of God walk out in obedience to God, the enemy of God wants to get in the way of it. So let's look at Acts chapter 4 as the mission is opposed, and I want you to pay attention as we read to this. These people experience persecution. Pay attention to what they're persecuted for saying, okay? So let's read, starting, this is chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, preaching against homosexuality, abortion, and taxation. Oh, hang on, sorry, wrong, wrong version. Preaching climate change, government welfare, and how terrible the current political regime is. Hang on, that wasn't it either. 
They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and we're being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were really educated seminary men with multiple degrees, sorry, wrong translation again. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they've performed a notable sign. We cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, rulers band together against the Lord and against his literally Messiah. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Man, this is like intense. I'm hoping you feel some of the intensity of this. To add to that intensity, I think we forget when we read through the Bible and when we jump into these stories, 
We forget their proximity to the events that just happened at the end of Luke's gospel. Jesus was approached by the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the elders. He was carted off to the Gentile authorities, brutally tortured and crucified. We know the story of Peter as some, he's watching on and someone's like, hey, you were with that guy. He's like, no, I wasn't. <laughs> I don't want to be part of this. The fear that he would have experienced in that moment, wondering if he was going to experience the same fate as Jesus. So now we're like 40 days later, maybe 50 days later. So we're talking a month, a month and a half later. These guys are doing what they believe Jesus has called them to do. And all of a sudden, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the, the temple police come and grab them. So what do you think they think is about to happen? Right? They would be racked with fear and intimidation that they're about to suffer the same fate that Jesus has suffered. So this is a terrifying moment, and we don't see it because it's just part of the narrative that we're used to. So you have this moment where they're, they're, like, they're on the brink of potentially losing their life, their livelihood, the mission that they believe they're called to, their life is in the hands of these people, and look at what they do. Look at their reaction. Look at how they behave. The primary mark of the Spirit, so that's the self. The primary mark of the Spirit that I want to keep hitting home with us is this. They were filled with the Spirit, and so they preached Christ. Super simple. They were filled with the Spirit, and so they preached Christ. Regardless of the suffering that stood before them, regardless of the fear and intimidation in front of them, the Spirit filled them, and they preached Christ. You know, Acts 4.8. Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them. So he's standing in front of the people that could kill him in a moment. And his response is, let me tell you about Jesus. <laughs> that, that, that shocks me. Maybe you guys are like, yeah, I got it. I'm like, really? If those people, when I was in that car, in that village, had grabbed their car and dragged me out, would my first thought have been, great, an opportunity to tell these people about Jesus? Uh, after I probably had an accident first out of fear. Um, <laughs> but this is, you know, we can have lots of conversation about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. We can talk about baptism in the Spirit. We can talk about tongues. We can talk about healings. We can talk about all of that stuff. The primary fruit of the Spirit is love manifest in our life. The primary evidence of the Spirit is that we are driven in the process of preaching Christ. If you're not preaching Christ, you have a deficit of fullness of the Spirit. If you have the fullness of the Spirit, He compels you to declare the goodness of Jesus. When you're filled with the Spirit, you will preach Christ. Part of the reason we gather as a church, part of the reason we gather in homes, part of the reason we come together as believers is to seek a filling again so that we're empowered to go out into the world. But how often that turns into, we gather together, we seek the filling, we give it to each other, and then we go home and forget all about what God's called us to do. If you are a believer and the Spirit is in you, his job is to compel you to preach Christ to the world around about you. Um, this is who we need to be as a church. This is the foundation of everything that we're going to keep seeing through the book of Acts. Luke is going to be really clear. Every step of the way, the Spirit is going to move. It's going to manifest itself in tongues and healings and signs and wonders. Why? Because it then compels people to share the gospel. 
So many people want to stop at the first half of it and go home. We need to recover the second part of how it works and what we're supposed to be doing. So I said pay attention to what it was they were preaching and pay attention to what it was they were persecuted for. Let me fly through the five things that this passage shows that they were preaching and declaring that resulted in persecution. And then as, I, as I'm talking about it, I want you to answer this question. Does this look like the church in the West or not? When we claim persecution in the West as Christians, are we persecuted for the same things they're persecuted for or something different? So let's look at number one. They preached Christ. What did they preach? They preached the resurrection of the dead. It says they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So the thing that people were getting hung up on is this group of people were saying, this isn't the only life that we live and that the end we're going to be raised and we're going to be with Christ in, in a new creation that is God's kingdom here on the earth. You've got the Sadducees as part of this contingent that are attacking the Christians here. The Sadducees were a group of people that didn't believe in angels and didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They liked the first five books of the Bible and decided that the first five books, the Torah, the books of the law of Moses were scripture, all the prophetic writings and everything else were just kind of additional, optional extras, kind of like commentary on the first five books. So that meant they ended up with some really wonky theology. And so here they are. Their issue is not Jesus, but that these people are preaching the resurrection of the dead. You know, that's still an issue in our culture today. How many people around you believe in the resurrection of the dead? How many people round about you are, are adamantly thinking that God is sending angels to minister to us and lead us closer to Christ? So this is still a message that when we proclaim this today, it gets kicked back from the people round about us. But when you hear the church in the West get slated, when you hear us talk about persecution, are we being persecuted for preaching the resurrection of the dead? <laughs> no, it tends to be other things. Um, so this is part one. As they're preaching, they preach the resurrection of the dead. Part two, what were they preaching? They preached that Jesus heals. It says, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and we've been asked how he was healed, then know this. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man stands before you healed. So their persecution here and the defense they're having to give, supernatural things are happening. An act of kindness was conducted. The love of God was felt. It was shared. The power of God fell. And this person's life was changed. And they're persecuted. <laughs> because the religious establishment felt threatened. I'm sure the medical establishment would feel threatened if the church could be laying hands on and healing people, you know? Because our little thrones are being challenged. The thing in this passage, these verses that strikes me the most is this. Are we being called to account today for an act of kindness? When I hear the church in the West being criticized, we're not being criticized and persecuted for acts of kindness. It's because as the church, we are proliferating acts of unkindness. The New Testament writers go on to say, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
We're supposed to be living kind, loving, caring lives towards people and allowing the world around us to accuse us of being too kind, too loving. (laughs) But so often we operate in the opposite side of this equation. Jesus heals. He gives hope. He gives grace. He gives mercy. We want to be people that walk in that. The third thing that he says in this passage is simply declaring the crucifixion of Jesus. This Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Part of the persecution was they were accusing the religious establishment of having killed the Messiah that they were longing for. They're saying, you're so blind to God's plan, you misunderstand the scriptures so much that you've lost it, and you're actually responsible for killing God's chosen messenger. And again, this is a message that our culture doesn't like. When you start talking about the crucifixion, people are like, yeah, that didn't happen. I don't believe in Jesus. There is more historical evidence for Jesus' life than there is for all of the Caesars that we, that we celebrate in Rome. Any other part of ancient history, there is more evidence of the person and the work of Jesus than anything else. Um, so this is, this is a fact. Jesus was crucified. That is a fact that, that the world around us needs to reckon with. But that begins a conversation about why and the second part, that God raised him from the dead. And if that is true, what Jesus stood for matters. What he declared would happen is coming to pass. And then we have a role in partnering with him to spread this message. Number four, they proclaimed that salvation is in Christ alone. The stone that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Oh, this is unpopular. (laughs) Even in the church, the church is being birthed. The apostles are explaining how it works. There is salvation in no other route except Jesus. And man, we want to accommodate every other way to make it happen. (laughs) This is an unpopular message. If you're going to be persecuted for something, be persecuted for this, (laughs) for declaring that salvation comes through Jesus alone. There is no other God. There is no other path. There is no other religion. There is no other set of services that you can engage in that brings salvation. Salvation comes through Jesus alone. This is the emphasis of what they're making. Number five, it goes on and says that um, they're called in again and commanded not to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter says, what's right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help spreading about what we have seen and heard. So they preached what they'd seen and heard. And here's the thing that as I was studying for this sermon, it frustrated me from this passage. I hear a lot of people majoring on stuff in the Western church that they're very vocal about that they've never seen or heard from Jesus. It's crazy. Like these people focused on what they saw and heard. They're called to be witnesses. They're bearing witness to the transformation that they saw. They're bearing witness to the life that he lived, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the outpouring of the Spirit. They're bearing witness to the teaching about the kingdom. 
They're bearing witness that God's plan is being fulfilled and his kingdom has been established and the doors are being blown wide and the people that you least expect can be welcomed in. So we've got to ask ourselves, as we're out there trying to communicate faith to people and we're trying to defend our faith to people, are the things that we are being vocal about as the church in the West and as our church here, are they the things that we see and hear from Jesus? Because if they're not, then we've gone askew from the things that we hear Jesus say. It's up here on the screen. Sadly, what they were vocal about is not the same as what we are vocal about. When I go overseas and I look at the persecuted church, they are persecuted for proclaiming Jesus. When they proclaim Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, when they proclaim that salvation is found in him, it it clashes with communist regimes. It clashes with Hinduism. It clashes with Islam. It clashes with animism and the other religions that are there. It clashes with governments and systems that don't represent Jesus, but the people are not the church. They're not standing up there preaching against the government. They're not standing up there preaching about how we believe we're supposed to live as a result of who Jesus was and what he did. They're simply preaching Christ. So much of the obstacle that we have to overcome when it comes to sharing the gospel of hope with the people around about us are the barriers that we as the church have erected that stop people from wanting to hear the gospel. So the biggest work that we have to walk in is tearing down those barriers, surprising someone by the level of love that we show them when they believe the church has rejected them, surprising them by the level of welcome they get as they participate in our community, surprising them by our generosity and advocacy for the things that they care about, even although it stands against our values, in order that we can pave the way to show them the love of Jesus and reveal who he was and see their salvation. But we've gone so off in the church. So this is, this is an encouragement. If we're being a church filled with the Spirit, we need to be preaching Christ. But preaching Christ doesn't look the way most of us assume it looks. And when we claim we're being persecuted for the name of Jesus, we need to make sure that these are the things that we're being persecuted for, not our interpretation and other things that people are fighting against us about. Let's make sure that we're focused on the right things. The other stuff comes later. Side note to that. You could say, but when you go on into the rest of the New Testament, the writers are really clear that there are certain ways you're supposed to live your life, and there are certain ways that are opposed to the way of God. Well, here's the deal. Those letters were written to the church, not to the world. There were messages to the church saying, this is how you govern life within your community. This is how you help people to live in wholeness. It wasn't, here's the letters that we stood up in the street and we condemned the nation round about us for the way that they lived. But so often, we take the truth of Scripture that was preached to the church and we preach it to the world, but they can't receive it because they don't have the Spirit of Christ. So our job is to break down barriers, introduce people to Jesus, allow the Spirit to fall on them, and then as they unfold in the church and they start looking at the Scriptures and responding to the Spirit, we let God do the rest of the work. 
I think some of us like to pretend we're the Holy Spirit and be the convictor of the world. That, that job was taken. <laughs> I, I like that role. It's fun. Don't like it when it's done to me. Um, so first of all, the Spirit falls, they preach Christ. The second thing that I want to draw attention to, there's just three and these last two are quick, so don't worry. The second thing to pay attention to here, the Spirit, as he falls, took ordinary people and fit them for the task. It says they were unschooled and ordinary men. And I always bring this passage up because it's so important and so encouraging. The biggest reason we give for not doing the things that God calls us to do, the biggest reason we give for not sharing the gospel with the people around about us is I don't know enough. I'm not mature enough. I don't know how to do it. These were unschooled ordinary men. There was no seminary training. There was no discipleship curriculum. There was no book that they could lead somebody through. But God took these people with no, they had some education. They grew up in the Jewish system. They'd memorized some scriptures. They had rhythms of prayer. They understood the general principles of the law. But God took those people, poured the spirit on them, and all of a sudden these people are understanding scripture. They're interpreting it. They're declaring it to the people around about. So if you're here and you're an unschooled ordinary man or woman, God wants to equip you to take the gospel to the people around about. And you know something? The funny thing is, if you're a schooled, extraordinary person, I mean, we could talk about the Apostle Paul, because he was a very schooled and extraordinary person. But being a schooled and extraordinary person can be a huge hindrance to your ability to proclaim the gospel to the people around about, because we start depending on the knowledge that we've learned, the tools that we've adopted, and we preach that instead of the message of Jesus. We stop listening to what he wants to say through me to the person in front of me, and we declare the things that we've already pre-planned that we want to say. So if you're an unschooled ordinary person, I've said this almost every week so far, if you feel that you're ill-equipped to share the gospel with the people around about you, we'll do work to help bring equipping. But there are two things that you need. Knowledge of the word of God. So get with some people and read it. And the filling of the spirit. And the second is almost more important than the first. You allow the Spirit to fill you. He will use you. And what does it say about them? It wasn't just that they took note that these men knew these incredible things and were really wise and learned and caring. They were unschooled, ordinary men, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Something about what it looks like to respond to the Spirit. Something about what it looks like for love to compel us, for the gospel to be preached with boldness when you're an insignificant person reveals to people the transforming power of Jesus that they can experience too. So let us enjoy being unschooled and ordinary, empowered by the Spirit, and sent out to do extraordinary things. The last point is the one that kind of messes with me the most. And I think is where maybe we see the biggest discrepancy between the early church and the church today. They prayed for boldness. You have these moments. They have this confrontation. They have a couple of different confrontations. Shut your mouth. Don't preach the gospel anymore. It's intimidation strategy. It's threats. 
They get back together, they start sharing, and it says they raise their voices together in prayer to God. And what do they say? Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak the word with great boldness. In the face of persecution, in the face of threat, in the face of everything going to pot, they prayed for boldness. They didn't pray for a changed government. They didn't pray to be relocated to a different part of the world. They didn't pray for safety and preservation of their life. In the face of these threats, they prayed for boldness to go out and declare the word with even more authority and fervor. And I feel like here, when we feel like things aren't going the way we want, it's like sanitize my life, protect me, surround me by good people, take them out, tear them down, like cause their car to explode while they're driving down the road, and precatory Sam's, they're in there. Uh, it wasn't a car driving down the road piece. But, but what we pray for is not often what we see the early church pray for in the face of persecution, threat, loss of life, and in the middle of a system that was 100% opposed to the way of Jesus, they prayed for the boldness to risk more and potentially to suffer more. Um, so what does that mean for us as a church? Are we going to pray that the world changes to make it more comfortable for us? Are we going to pray for a filling of the Spirit and ask for the boldness to declare the truth about Jesus even when it means rejection? Are we going to take the opportunity to talk about Christ to the family member that we're scared that if we raise this issue, they're not going to talk to us anymore? Are we going to raise the issue with our boss who doesn't know Jesus? Um, knowing that it might make things awkward for a little while. Heaven forbid that there's like an awkward relationship for a few weeks because you mentioned Jesus. Maybe it's a neighbor that, that is a adamant person opposed to Jesus that's vocal about it, flies in the face of everything that you value. And you think, I can't share the gospel with them because that's going to make our living situation difficult. What will the people in our neighborhood think? We have to pray that when things look hard, when it looks like we're going to be rejected, that we have the boldness to walk forward with the truth. And, and again, what's the truth? It's not our politics. It's not our doctrine. It's not the, uh, the polity and the setup of our church. It's not our vision for what a better world looks like. It's the message of Jesus. Death, resurrection, ascension. The outpouring of the Spirit and the abundant life that is offered. So this is why we're going through Acts. I think in, in the West, we've lost so much sight of this. In the faith, without persecution, we've allowed ourselves to drift from what's important to other things. And a lot of the time, the kinds of persecution and difficulties we face are things that we've created ourselves. And so we've got to get back to the center. Are you preaching Christ? I mean, this is true for Mon and I. Like, we don't experience a lot of kickback. We don't experience a lot of persecution. I don't have friends rejecting me for my faith. Part of that is because you've built relationship and you're operating in kindness. Part of it is because we're not being bold enough with the gospel. I'm not pushing against the idols in their life. So let's be a church that preaches Christ. Let's be a church that are unschooled, ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to move. And let's be a church that when things get difficult, and things will get difficult, Scripture says it will get worse and worse, and things will get harder and harder, 
that our prayer is for boldness and that we take more risk to preach the gospel. To, to finish up, I'm going to invite Jack up. Um, we're going to take communion together. And what is communion? I mean, it's remembering the ultimate act of persecution and the ultimate display of boldness in the middle of it. And so um, we'll have Jack come up. We'll take communion together. Uh, we'll sing a worship song together. Um, and then we'll be done. Um, I am just going to read from Scripture on communion. Um, So this is John 6, uh, verse 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Um, So I'm just gonna pray. Uh, Jesus, we thank you um, that we do have, that we do live in a place where we have freedom um, and we aren't experiencing physical and persecution for our lives, um, like in those other places that Scotty mentioned. But Jesus, we pray that we would feast on you alone, um, that we would really be people that honor uh, the bread and the cup that we would eat of your flesh and drink of your blood, that we would live uh, dependent lives on you. Um, We thank you, Jesus, for paying the ultimate price for laying down your life, for living perfectly, um, but not just taking that for yourself, but laying it all down um, for bleeding and dying, for being bruised and broken for our sins, for our iniquity. Um, So Jesus, we bless uh, these crackers and this this juice that is your body Um, we want to drink your blood and uh, eat of your flesh we want to be your followers we want to um, we want to feast on you and we want to live eternally in you Uh, we want you to be our life so we thank you jesus Um, and so now we will drink uh, the blood that you shed for us eat uh, the bread that is your flesh 